page 263, 2 Samuel, chapter 12, the whole of chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. Dear God, thank you that you always speak and uh, you judge every man's heart. Thank you that you know exactly what we think about you and uh, how we treat you. And thank you that you speak into the into that. Um, every time we open your word, if we are open to hear from you. Uh, I pray you do that tonight um, in your faithfulness to us. Amen. Amen. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. It grew with him and with his children. The lamb used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, 
Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now the child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks Rob for praying and reading. And I think our children are going to head out. And I just realised that I need my little pad of notes. That will help me to not stay longer because I can't think of what to say. Right. Well, in case you've accidentally shut the Bible, we are on page 263 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. And let's come to this part of the Bible with a question. And that is, what will God do when his people get it wrong. And I mean get it badly wrong. And if you want to know the story so far where that happened, well, it's that just in verse 9, if you have a look, it tells you uh, David has struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be his, uh, to be David's wife and has killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So that's uh, all that uh, David has done. It's seriously wrong. What will God do next? And you can sum it up in one word, and one word only, God will be gracious. Now, be careful how you hear that word, because it sounds wonderfully uh, warming. But let me tell you that when God is gracious, you are going to discover that there is pain as well as praise. And we're going to see both. First, we're going to see pain. And the first thing we discover when God is gracious is that he reveals the sadness of sin. Helps us to see that it's horrible. If you were here last week when David did all the damage, you might have thought that God was pretty silent. He didn't do anything to stop all the craziness that was going on when David loved another woman and had her husband killed. 
And you might just think that uh, there's uh, a God who maybe at the end tells you, at the end of uh, chapter 11, that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord or was evil in the Lord's sight. But you might just think, well, that just simply means that he watches passively. (coughs) He doesn't like it, but he does nothing about it. Until you get to chapter 13, verse 1, and then you have the God who speaks. And when you have the God who speaks, you've got the God who is going to act. Because in the Bible, the God who speaks is the God who acts. And what we're going to discover is he acts to show us and speaks to show us how horrible sin is. Now, I might think, hmm, I'm not entirely sure about a God like that. I mean, after all, uh, isn't, he's going to put people on a guilt trip, isn't he, if he does that? And the answer is yes. There is only one thing worse than being on a guilt trip, and you know what that is? It's not being on a guilt trip, because then we go and do the same thing again and again. But a guilt trip has a reason for it, and we're going to see when we come into the details. But let's first see how guilty we ought to be when we sin. Because I want to persuade you that there are real reasons why sin is horrible. In the first place, it shows how ungrateful we are. Sin is ungrateful. Nathan tells us a story about uh, a rich man who has lots of things and he goes to uh, steal the one sheep that is owned by a poor man. And what uh, Nathan is saying is that, David, you are like the rich man. God has given you lots and lots of good things. Just have a look at verses 7 and 8. See what God has given him. I anointed you king of Israel, I delivered you out the hand of Saul, and I gave you a master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that were too little, I would add to you as much more. So it does lead naturally to the question, why would we want to go against a God like this? It doesn't make sense. And it is interesting, isn't it, that when David makes people feel guilty, Nathan comes along and he doesn't list a whole number of commandments that David has broken. He lists instead a whole number of blessings. That's interesting, isn't it? There's no finger wagging. There's just look at all that God has given you. Why? And that's actually, I think, a really helpful thing for us. If anyone asks you, why is it that you want to stop sinning? We don't read off, well, there are these commandments we don't want to break. No, there's this God of blessing we don't want to offend. That's why sin is so horrible. It is ultimately to be ungrateful to a very, very generous God. Secondly, sin is anti-God. It despises God by despising his word. That's what verse 9 tells us. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do that is to despise God himself. 
There was a cheerful music composer, you might have heard of him, called Franz Joseph Haydn. And he wrote happy music, and he was a happy chappy. But his wife used to cut up his music and use it to curl her hair as hair as paper for her hair curlers. That showed her inner resentment towards him and what he did. You cut up his music and it shows contempt for the person who wrote it. And it's like that when we cut up God's commands and his word as well. And it also actually leads in verse 14 for other people to think that this God is rubbish if we treat him like that. It is profoundly anti-God, but it is also anti-people, isn't it? In verses 9 and 10, the middle of verse 9 and verse 10, and you can see it there. Uh, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And uh, that's how anti-other people uh, David's actions have been. And you know that when Uriah died, he didn't die alone, because we saw last week that when there was this action taken against the Ammonites with the planned outcome of Uriah dying, there were other casualties apart from him. David's servants fell, they died, and Uriah also died. There were many people who died because of David's sin, not just Uriah. And that's just important for us to understand, isn't it? Because a lot of people say, well, if I sin in private, what difference does it make? It doesn't affect my job, it doesn't affect uh, other people. It's just me and this particular thing that I've done wrong. The answer is this. There is not one sin that you can do in private that does not hurt someone else. Just is worth thinking that through. And then finally you can see it deserves death. Now, that little story of the rich man taking what belonged to the poor man made David see red in verse 5. And if you look at verse 5, you'll see that these words are amazingly severe. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. In other words, this is God's opinion on the matter there should be death as a result of uh, this um, huge injustice. And that's true. Sin shuts the door on life and ultimately brings to us the judgment of God. Now I wonder whether, I guess in our world, we might just understand that sin is ungrateful and anti-God and anti-others, I guess the thing that we're not easily able to accept, that he'll bring on us the judgment of God, and yet that's exactly why sin is so horrible, and we need to see that it is. And I want to explain that actually it's a very, very gracious thing of God to show us how horrible sin is for this reason. It's in verse 13. It creates humility. And so in verse 13, there are just two words that David speaks. Essentially, uh, he admits that he's uh, got it wrong. It's just two words in Hebrew, but more words, words in English. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Just two words. And when our guilt leads us just to acknowledge what David says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. When our guilt leads to that instant forgiveness in verse 13, it's the same verse. You don't even need another verse. It tells you there and then, Nathan says to David, the Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Guilt admission of sin, instant forgiveness. Now you might say, two words? Surely we might have expected God to uh, require a little bit more than that. I mean, that's just too quick, isn't it? How can God forgive someone by just saying two words of, Lord, I have sinned? The answer is, when we add words, after we've sinned. Normally, it's to justify ourselves, to give an excuse, to blame someone else perhaps. But here David doesn't do that. He just says, me, I have sinned against the Lord. So two words are enough to just admit that. If you actually want David to tell you more about how he felt, we'll read Psalm 51. You get a much bigger account but with just two words, David admits his guilt and is instantly forgiven. It is very gracious of God to make us feel guilty, to then take us to that place of forgiveness. But the second thing about sin that makes it horrible is that it has side effects. Grace reveals uh, the sadness of sin, Grace also reveals the side effects of sin. Yes, God does forgive sin, but he does inflict on us the consequences of sin. So there may be no more defilement, but there will be discipline. And after forgiveness announced in verse 13... You see the consequences coming out in verse 14. The child will die. Almost seems that the child is going to die instead of David. And there are questions there that this part of the Bible doesn't answer. They are left hanging in the air. How can someone die to make another person forgiven? But we don't get the full answer at this point. But we do have people today talking about how church folk are famous for making a very quick apology and then all is forgiven. You can go out and do the same thing all over again and come back for more forgiveness. Um, there's a phone that is just about to go silent, I think. I always wonder, actually, what people um, want to phone up and talk about this time of day, but that would take us into a completely different uh, track of thought, wouldn't it? It would be a great disservice to this part of the Bible to go down that one. The point is this, that when we think that 
Yeah, you do a quick apology to God, he does quick forgiveness, and then you do a quick repeat of what he did before. Let me assure you, the Bible tells us life really doesn't work like that because God doesn't work like that. And what we're going to find out is that these consequences that Nathan outlines in verses 10 to 12 of uh, chapter 12 about all that's going to happen in the future, that um, uh, the sword won't depart from his house uh, and he'll raise up evil against David, he'll take his wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he'll lie with your wives uh, in everybody's sight. Uh, let me tell you the consequences of what happens. We won't need to go into too much time here because we have got week after week after week from next week onwards till the end of this book, the consequences will be rolling out and we will see the side effects of sin. So it is uh, true that there is no profit from sin, that consequences come thick and fast, and we'll keep seeing them week after week. Now, you might just say to, you, to me, isn't that a bit harsh? I mean, what's the value of God forgiving us if he's then going to keep on punishing us? How does that work? But here's the thing to consider, that when God disciplines us, it shows us, as the consequences continue, that God is still hands-on and involved in our lives, that he hasn't just simply walked away and left us to get on with it. And life goes hunky-dory. He is still there. That's what the consequences reveal. And it shows our sinful watching world that there is a God, that he won't let his people get away with these things. He doesn't just simply take a mumbled apology and let us carry on, in other words. When they see the consequences, they know it isn't, it isn't like that. But I think best of all, it shows us that when God helps us to see our consequences, he is ultimately treating us as responsible human beings. So he doesn't leap in and stop us doing wrong, but he does <coughs> reveal to us the consequences of what happens when we do wrong so that we can be responsible and not go there. So, to give you a very painful example, if this was to be the case and I went and was unfaithful to my wife, it's not that God would put lots of things in the way to stop me doing that. He doesn't treat me, in other words, like a robot. But he does treat me like a responsible person for me to consider the consequences of that. What will that do to the trust that Debbie has in me? How will that affect the respect that my children have for me? It would kill uh, my affection in the congregation. My Christian friends would be hugely disappointed. I couldn't bear to see them see their faces again. The watching world that I've been going out to on the estate will mock God as they mock me. Now, you see, when you think through the consequences of what we're doing 
and we don't therefore plunge into sin recklessly. You can see that God is treating us as responsible people. That is a gracious thing to do when he sets consequences and their effect before us. Yes, the fact that God is gracious means that he won't let me go and he won't let me get away with doing what I do because he is gracious. So the first thing we find out is that God reveals uh, the sadness of sin, the side effects of sin, but then lastly, God reveals the saviour of sinners. It's staggering to hear Nathan the prophet come in verse 13 and to say to David, you will not die when the Old Testament part of the Bible tells us that he should die. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says that this is what should happen to a person who commits adultery. So is the Bible full of contradictions? It says that there, but now you will not die. No, it is not full of contradictions, but it is full of grace. And in the future there will be a son who died for David's sin. Not this son, but God's son. So David therefore did not die and his sin could be put away. And let me tell you this dazzling, dazzling truth that just as there are side effects to sin, let me tell you there are side effects to forgiveness as well. First, it means that the relationship with God, remember, is anti-God, but nonetheless the relationship with God continues. David prays. Would you believe it? He prays that the consequences won't pan out the way that Nathan said that it would. Now it is astonishing that a man would talk to God saying, I'm going to ask you not to do this. Surely David would not have done that unless he understood that God was massively gracious. You wouldn't keep talking to God and asking him to do these things unless you were persuaded that he will draw back and have mercy. David was persuaded and convinced about that. He carried on praying. The second thing he did is he has a happy marriage. For the first time, he treats Bathsheba as a wife. He deals with her emotions, not just with her body. So in verse 24 it says that he comforts her. For the first time in verse 24, she is now called his wife. And then, wonderfully, from that marriage comes an amazing successor. So that Solomon is born and he is going to be the king that will be wise in David's kingdom and make it ultimately the pinnacle of greatness. And from Solomon's line will come that ultimate success of the Lord Jesus Christ that was promised to David in chapter 7. So it is astonishing, isn't it, that out of that sin will be born the saviour of sin.
and said therefore there is a great successor uh, who will be born in due course. And then lastly, if you carried on reading from verse 26, uh, you'll see that there is military success. In other words, David will continue to be the king who delivers his people from their enemies. His usefulness hasn't ended. His work will continue. These are the side effects of forgiveness. Lest we be condemned to think that once we have crossed the line, there is no crossing back and there is no future that we can have. There will be a relationship with God, a deepening relationship, perhaps a deeper relationship with God than we had before because it's now based on real humility. There will be closeness in relationships that weren't that close in the past. There will be ways in which God will work out his plans wonderfully because of our sin. So that it almost seems that sin does profit even though the consequences will tell us that it doesn't. And then thirdly, God has still useful work for us to do on the other side. I want you to take heart from that, but I want you to uh, go further and just think through what we might take home with us as we leave. First, if you are new to church and to Christianity, and you're beginning to see how God graciously is drawing you in, may I suggest one sure sign that he is doing that is that he will show you how horrible your sin is. Previously, like David, we might have wanted to think that we were fine, but the Bible shows us, almost as a first discovery, that our sin is horrible because it is something that goes against God. And that happens in order, and the only way you will be brought to the point that he will say, I have sinned against the Lord. And really say that with some depth. And then experience the amazing forgiveness of God that comes to you as you speak in that way. If you are new to church, then don't push back at feeling guilty because the road through guilt leads into wonderful forgiveness and new life. If you are used to church, well then it is a similar lesson that we need to learn that actually sin is horrible. Because church people generally haven't done any major sin. We haven't, generally I don't think, killed anybody quite this way. Nor have we uh, slept perhaps most church people with uh, those uh, with, with wives of other people. And therefore we may think that actually David is in a league apart from us. Yeah, he's in the serious crime division, but we are never really going to be that bad. But can you see that the smallest sin 
has all the hallmarks of the big sin. The small sin is ingratitude, isn't it, to the God who has given us so much? The small sin is still anti-God. It is still despising his word, despising him. And the smaller sin is still going to hurt other people. And uh, the smaller sin is still going to be deserving of death. And therefore our scaled down failures need the same words that David spoke in verse 13. Lord, I have, I have sinned against the Lord. Same words, because ultimately it's the same failure. So our conversations need to start like this as well. There's no league table. But it may be that uh, the big lesson of this chapter is for real believers like you and me who have failed. And we wonder what God does with failures. Well, remember, first, how seriously David failed. I think we're at a high watermark to understand the level of God's forgiveness, because by and large, I don't think any of us will be as seriously uh, able to offend God because the opportunity doesn't come our way in quite that scale, and therefore we are never going to be hitting those levels of disobedience that David and um, ultimately David in the Old Testament and Paul, or Saul, as he was in the New Testament, stand as pinnacle sinners to show that actually, well, your sin is great, but if they can be forgiven, well, that's how it might be for you. And do remember, God is gracious to them. But also do remember that there are two consequences to that grace. First, there is pain. The consequences that lead us to hate the fact that we ever did that, so that we don't go near that error again. That is God's discipline. And that is a consequence that we need to factor in. But please don't make that the only consequence that you factor in, because there are two consequences. There are also the side effects of forgiveness, of a new relationship with God, of a deeper relationship with others, of being caught up into God's purposes in the future, of being continuing, continually useful to him, maybe in a different way. I guess it would be fair if a clergyman or a church leader was to fail, that they might uh, be replaced, uh, because that would then make it really hard for people to hear God speak without uh, thinking through the implications of hypocrisy. Now that may be one of the consequences that come from a minister today uh, failing in the way that David felt. Now, David didn't lose his job, but I think there would be a reason why ministers might 
not be uh, given the same opportunity to carry on. But nonetheless, there will be usefulness in a different way. And we need to understand that God is gracious. And that's why the story will continue. But let's humble ourselves just very briefly. It may be something that you want to talk to God about. Maybe as you understand how failure um, is not to be avoided but admitted in order that uh, uh, great forgiveness might come. Maybe that's something you want to talk to God about and ask him for. And maybe that might be true of, of something little, not just something large. And it may be that you want to talk to God and return to him in a new way. Let's take a minute and pray privately, and then I'll close this part in prayer, and we'll take some questions and answers. Our Father, we thank you for being so gracious. Thank you for revealing to us how horrible it is to throw your kindness in your face and how horrible it is to despise you and others. Please would you help us to go through guilt, to humbly acknowledge our sin. And please would you help us to respond to you, trusting you, to be gracious to us. Please would you help us to act as if you are a gracious God when we sin. And please would you help us to even pray for your help as we continue to live with the consequences of sin. And help us to respond with gratitude in all the different ways you will turn our sin into blessing. And we pray that for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.